I can still remember exactly where I was sitting for a particular conversation that took place in the fall of 2005. At that time, my wife Liz and I were serving as campus ministers at Boston University. We had a regular staff meeting with our other InterVarsity colleagues in Boston, and one of the things on the agenda was on the agenda every time we met was to spend time praying and brainstorming for how we could engage with the increasing number of students on campus who are cynical or just indifferent about matters of faith. And then later on the agenda that day, there was a little invitation we had to consider from a colleague of ours in New Orleans who had invited us to consider if any students would want to come down during the spring break to help with rebuilding after Hurricane Katrina, which at that time was the costliest natural disaster in U.S. history. 80% of the city of New Orleans had been flooded. So we began to talk and, and process. There was some, something familiar about this trip. We'd done spring break urban plunges, as we called them before. Liz and I had taken groups of about a dozen students to Boston for spring break to explore God's heart for the city. These were mostly Christian students. But as we started talking about this, it took on a different tone. We started to wonder, hey, what about all these students we're, we're praying for who are indifferent or cynical about faith? We know many of them even if they don't care about Jesus, are pretty passionate about service. And Katrina is on people's minds, and, and these students certainly wouldn't mind going to a warm place for spring break. As we started talking, the energy was building in the room, and we began to think, yeah, actually, let's go all in and try to invite as many students as we know to come to New Orleans for spring break. And fast forward, one thing left, led to another, and in early March 2006, Liz and I found ourselves with a group of nearly 50 BU students from a wider range of spiritual backgrounds, about half followers of Jesus, half not, in New Orleans for the week to serve. I've got a picture of uh, some of those students right there. Some amazing things happened that week. We saw people who hadn't really opened up to spiritual things before suddenly looking at the Bible with us in the context of living in community and serving together. Those of us who went came back pretty fired up. On the one hand, I learned that Katrina was an even worse disaster than I'd imagined. Seeing it firsthand was, was horrifying, and I was passionate that, that we should continue to go back, not only because of that, but also something almost magical seemed to happen as we were in community together with this diversity of students, watching them open up to Jesus. And then one thing has led to another, and since then, now, uh, 7,918 students from New England have participated in this, in this program, gone to New Orleans and to other places hit by natural disasters over spring break in a program called Serve Up. And of those students, since then, 617 of them have professed some kind of decision to follow Jesus for the first time. It's one of the most amazing things I've, I've ever been a part of. And it really came out of a disaster, if you think about it. Now we're in part five of a sermon series here called Now What? Finding God's path in seasons of change. And today we're going to talk about seeing opportunity in the midst of crisis. And this is not just a call to positive thinking or to look on the bright side of things, but a call to look for God and what he is doing in this season. Finding opportunity in crisis. When we kicked off this series, Pastor Tom made reference to a fairly well-known scripture from Romans 8.28 says, and we know in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. 
in all things. That doesn't leave anything out. There's no circumstances under which God is not working for good in and through his people. Now, that doesn't make all things good, but it means that even in bad things, God is working for good. For all the amazing fruit we've seen through Serve Up, I've never once thought, you know, maybe Katrina was actually a good thing, if you think about it. It was a horrible thing. I've wept over it every time I've been down there. But even in it, God could do some wonderful and amazing things. God doesn't need ideal working conditions to do good work, and sometimes it's under the worst conditions that he does his best work. So this is not an invitation to call bad things good, but to look for a good God doing good work in the midst of hard things. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that everything about this COVID-19 has just been maybe a blessing in disguise. You know, all the death and sickness and isolation and fear and angst and unrest and everything that comes with it. These things are all terrible, but they're not everything. And in the midst of it, God is good and is working for good. We need to look for where that's happening. Most of the Bible, in fact, does take place against a backdrop of disaster or crisis in one form or another, whether it's famine, plagues, wars, the rise and fall of great kingdoms and empires, the displacement of people, uh, godless and brutal rulers, all sorts of things. Most of the Old Testament and New Testament takes place against the backdrop of this sort of stuff. But it is a redemptive story of God always doing a, a redemptive and good work in his people and through his people. Last week, Scott shared a great example of this, looking at the Apostle Paul while he was in prison, really unfairly, unjustly in prison. But in that, Paul was able to write to the Philippians, you know, what has happened to me has actually helped to advance the gospel, not the least of which was writing Romans and many of the other letters we find in the New Testament. God was still working for good, even in the midst of a crisis for Paul. You could choose from any number of examples of God doing a good work through a crisis in Scripture, The one I want to look at today takes place in the book of Acts in the New Testament in chapter 8. You can turn there with me and also the scriptures will all be on the screen as well. But Acts chapter 8 takes place right after the first martyr in the Christian church was put to death, Stephen. The first of what would be many, many people over the centuries put to death for his faith in Jesus and his testimony about Jesus, Stephen was brutally stoned to death. And then this is what happens next. Picking up in chapter 8, we'll just read verses 1 through 4. On that day, a, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. It's a short story, but two really profound things happening here. Two two realities. One, we see a major crisis for the church, but we also see a catalytic moment for the church. A major crisis and a catalytic moment all at once. Make no mistake, this is a real crisis for the people who went through it. This is a horrible time for many of the people in the early church. There's death, people close to them that they love. There's loss, grief, and mourning. There's displacement, people suddenly uprooted from their homes with no warning and no real plan for what's next, finding themselves in in 
places they've never been before, having to figure it out, which is really a trauma for people who go through that. And we see a church kind of broken up in a way, and they, and they lose a lot that's very precious and profound. There's a snapshot earlier in the book of Acts of what life was like for the early church in Jerusalem. And I'll read it to you from Acts chapter 2. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This snapshot is really a beautiful and wonderful season in the lives of these people. They experienced the power and the blessing of God in profound ways, and they did it together. And this season that's described here came to a very abrupt halt, and they were never actually going to get this back again. Four times it says the word together, emphasizing the togetherness of, of these believers. And all of them would never be together again after this. Many of them would never get to worship in the temple courts again. Many of the homes where they gathered to break bread were suddenly, the people were displaced. They didn't live there anymore. The favor they enjoyed among the people had suddenly turned to a blatant hostility all of a sudden. They would simply just not be together like this again. And this season, a profound season of blessing, miracles, and breakthrough was over. And that had to be a difficult thing for the early believers. There's a lot of things about the season of life we were in, late February, early March, before all this stuff happened. Things we've realized were pretty sweet. A season that came to an end very abruptly. We lost some things that we might not get back for a long time or perhaps ever. Things in particular about our corporate life together as a church, how we gathered, how we worshipped, and how we, how we were together. I don't know when we're getting that back. And I don't know that the point is that we ought to look back for it. But to grieve it and to begin to look forward. Because as difficult a thing as this was for the early church, it was at the same time a catalytic event, a catalytic moment in the life of the early church. We're told that those who were scattered went throughout Judea and Samaria. We're told that they preached the word wherever they went. I want to bring you back to the beginning of the book of Acts where Jesus kind of lays things out, his commission to the early church. In Acts 1, verse 8, it says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is what Jesus intended all along for his church to begin in Jerusalem, but to burst out from there to Judea, to Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth, bringing the good news about Jesus to people everywhere. But up until Acts chapter 8, Pretty much everything is happening in Jerusalem still. 
It almost takes this event, this crisis, to propel the church outward, to get it doing what Jesus had intended for it to be doing all along. We see it right away, believers going throughout Judea and Samaria, preaching the word of God. The very first thing we see after where we left off in Acts chapter 8, verse 5, says, Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. And when he does that, there is a great revival in that city in Samaria. Many people turn to Christ. It's a wonderful thing. Then later on, Acts chapter 11 revisits this event. Chapter 11, verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. This is a huge breakthrough in the gospel going to the ends of the earth. For the first time, we see people breaking out of their Jewish comfort zone and and preaching to non-Jewish people. We have it, Antioch becomes the first ethnically diverse church in church history. And for centuries on, Antioch would end up being a major center of ancient Christianity. It's a huge breakthrough. In all of this, God uses the crisis of chapter 8 to get his church doing what it was supposed to have been doing the whole time. It was a catalytic event. One of the beautiful things I love about it is as we see people going to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, it's everyone except the apostles, we're told in chapter 8. All except the apostles who stayed in Jerusalem were scattered. It's them who's doing all the stuff. An amazing thing. They get to these places, and it reminds me when the the Celtics were really bad in the late 90s and fans were kind of pining for the glory days of Larry Bird and and the stars of the 80s. And at one point, Rick Pitino said, hey, look, Larry Bird is not walking through that door. Kevin McHale is not walking through that door. Robert Parrish is not walking through that door. And even if they did, they'd be too old and slow to do anything. It's time for some new people to step up. And we see God anoint a whole wide array of people going this way and that, taking on spiritual authority to preach the gospel, to plant churches in places that never been before. And I love how the ones in Antioch, we don't even know their names. Just some of them, some men from Cyprus and Cyrene, end up planting one of the major churches in the history of the Christian church. We don't even know who they are. But the gospel, the church has been decentralized. It's been scattered. It's not coming back. And it's, it's been catalyzed to do the thing it's supposed to do from the beginning. I've got to wonder how our current crisis we're going through could be a catalytic moment in the life of the church. Our church, the journey, the church in our city, the church in our country, I think, honestly, it's a matter of how, not if. We don't need to be asking, gosh, in the midst of this, is God doing anything good? But no, what good is God doing? And how can we be a part of it? I have to say, you know, for for a long time, for hundreds of years, in fact, the church in the West has really become synonymous with Sundays, buildings, and worship services, led by a small fraction of the people of God. 
Those things are all wonderful. I love our buildings. I love worshiping with you. It's important to have a regular rhythm of corporately gathering for worship with other believers. But you know, the church is a whole lot more than Sundays, buildings, and worship services. The church is all the people of God, every one of us, living lives of worship and loving God and our neighbor in every place we are every day of the week. I've just got to wonder if God might be using this crisis to help the church bust out of what we've been dependent upon, what we've perhaps been limited to. Most people, when they think of church around here, they think of these things, buildings, Sundays, and worship services. What if the church gained a different reputation in this time as believers were unleashed to step into their spiritual authority and to bring the gospel to every place where they are and any day they find themselves there? I can't say for sure how and what ways God will use this as a catalytic moment for the church. None of us can ever see the, the full picture in the moment. I think even these early believers couldn't see the whole big picture of what was going on in the book of Acts, but, but we've got to believe that, that the same God who works for good in all things is working for good now and has good things he is doing and wants to do in and through the church. And we've got to, we've got to look for it. We've got to look for it. This, this moment in Acts chapter 8 was a crisis for the church, but a catalytic moment. And the moment we're in now, it's both of those things as well. Yeah, none of us knows exactly what God has in mind for this, for all of us, for the church. I'm mostly just wanting to awaken our imaginations for how he might be working. And I want to encourage us to two faithful responses during this time on our part. Two faithful responses that we see in the lives of the believers who were scattered in Acts chapter 8 that we can learn from as well. So one faithful response on their part was they expected God to work. One faithful response in crisis is to expect God to work. I want to talk about the difference between expectations and being expectant. Expectations are specific things that we think are going to happen or that we think should happen, things that we specifically expect to happen. And many of us have had expectations shattered the last couple months. I mean, which one of us hadn't had things we were expecting to do, expecting to happen, that, that just got dashed to pieces? Our expectations have been, have been torn up. That happens a lot. In the midst of expectations being shattered, though, it's important that we not lose a sense of expectancy, which is a posture not about specific things, but a posture of believing and expecting God to work, expecting a good God to be doing good work. As we've had our expectations dashed, that's part of why it was important to talk about grief as we did a couple weeks ago. We grieve the lost expectations, but we can't let it destroy our sense of expectancy that God is at work. And we see the early disciples who were scattered continue to have a, an expectancy that God was going to work. We see Philip end up in this city in Samaria, and he's, he's not just looking back to Jerusalem, like, get me back there. I hate Samaria. This place stinks. Why am I here? It's unfair that I ended up here in the first place. Why can't I go back? Instead, he, he's expectant that God will do something in this city, in Samaria. And you can tell because he preaches Jesus to these people. 
You don't do that unless you expect that perhaps God might be at work in this city, in this place, under these circumstances, not just back where you were before. These believers were expectant that God was at work, and they saw him at work. And it kind of works together that way. You know, whatever narrative we have in our minds that we keep reinforcing, we're just going to keep seeing it. We're going to be drawn to anything that reinforces that narrative. So if we've got a narrative right now that this is scary or this is unfair, and we replay that over and over in our minds, we're just going to keep being drawn to anything and everything that tells us, yeah, this is scary or yeah, this is unfair. But if our narrative is God is at work, we're going to see God at work. And when he works in and around us, we're going to notice. So let's keep that narrative and expect God to work. The other thing, as these early disciples did in their expectancy, I'll call, do the next right thing. Just do the next right thing. I I learned this phrase from some of our friends in the recovery community. It's really helpful, you know, rather than thinking about how do I stay sober for the whole rest of my life or even for any given chunk of time, it's kind of too much to think about that, but how do I just do the next right thing? Get on my knees and pray to God. Call my sponsor. Go to a meeting. Just do the next right thing. These choices to, to do that add up to lengthy sobriety, but it's one choice at a time to do the next right thing, and this applies to everything. I found this principle very helpful in my own life, and in particular, during these past couple months we've been in. We, we just can't understand all that's ahead, all the big picture. We can't, we can't calculate the future. What we can do is just do the next right thing and trust God with the rest. Trust that God is doing something bigger, even if we can't understand it. These early disciples, they, they did the next right thing where they were. Philip found himself in Samaria, so he shared the gospel with people in Samaria. Later on, he suddenly found himself with a guy from Ethiopia in the desert. He had to wonder how he got there, but he just shared the gospel with that guy too. These early disciples in Antioch, I don't think they knew they were planting one of the most significant churches in history, but they saw Greek people and they realized they need Jesus too, so they shared Christ with those people just did the next right thing. And God did the bigger thing in the midst of it. And that's what we're called to do, really. Not to understand everything, but to keep putting one foot in front of the other to do the next right thing in expectancy that God is at work. And I wanted to share a couple snapshots of some people in our church who I've seen do that in these past few months. First is Pastor Tom's wife, Vitalina, Right before COVID-19, there she is uh, on Mother's Day at her home in New Jersey. Right before COVID-19, she went down to New Jersey just to spend a few days with her papa to help out after an operation. And that has turned into an 80-day stay in New Jersey due to various health concerns with not very many places to go. And believe me, for Vitalina, this is brutal to be apart from Tom, her kids, her grandson. It's a, it's a trying time. And yet Vit has been expectant that God's at work, and she has seen God at work. She wrote this on her Facebook page. I thought I would just read it to you. 
I sit on the front porch every day, sewing, reading, and praying. I have made many friends. We often have conversations that center around these uncertain times, and I often ask if I could pray over them. No one has said no. That's such a gift to make friends and to share God's love through prayer. Has Vit wanted to be there this whole time? Of course not. Will she come back as soon as possible? Yes. But in the meantime, she's been expecting that God has been at work and she's done the next right thing. Every neighbor that passes by on a walk, every Amazon driver or UPS delivery person, Vit's ready to pray for them. She does, and she's gotten to pray with all kinds of people that she never would have met otherwise. It's interesting, her, her situation, on the one hand, her circle has really been, been closed during this time, limited. You know, there's so many other places she would have gone, people she would have met, and she largely spends time in just one place and largely with one person. And, and for many of us, our circles have been, have been limited during this time. Ask any parent who's spending far more time with our children than we'd anticipated. And part of doing the next right thing for us been to just love the person right in front of us that God has, has placed in our smaller circle for this time. But at the same time, Vitt's circle has been expanded in surprising ways. These neighbors and, and delivery people, people she never would have met otherwise. She's seen opportunities to reach out with the love of Jesus and has made a number of new friends, as she says, expecting God to work and doing the next right thing. Vitt has brought the church to that little street in New Jersey. Another person I've been really marveling at is Ron Waddell. Many of you know Ron, who's launched a ministry called Legendary Legacies, working with young men in our city. You may not have realized, right before all this happened, Ron and his team set up shop in our Quinsigamond Village church campus. They renovated the basement area to set up office and space to hang out. And Ron and Junito have been in there quite a bit during this time. One of the things they do every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from our church is run online Zoom discussions for the young men that they work with. What's been interesting, Ron said that actually the, the Zoom discussions have seen the guys get more vulnerable and more honest than they've been before. There's something maybe about just being in front of a screen that makes them feel safer than they would sitting in a circle in person. They never would have planned that. They never would have expected to meet this way. But God is at work. And some of the guys are even inviting some of their friends to join in these online discussions, guys who wouldn't probably show up in person. Nothing like what Ron and Junito expected, but God is at work. Another thing they've done is, uh, or maybe it's, it's Tuesdays and Thursdays they run the online discussions. Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, they've been engaged in meal delivery to needy people all around Worcester. It started very informally. They just, they knew some people who needed food. They had ability to get food to those people, so they brought it. Then People started talking, noticing, hey, who are you guys? What are you doing? And now Ron and many of the young men he works with are delivering food in partnership with the Quinsig Village Community Center, the Worcester Food Bank, the Worcester Housing Authority, and a number of other organizations. This is not necessarily part of the, leg the legendary legacy that he was envisioning building during this time, but it's becoming that. And Ron is doing some great work 
in, in our neighborhood. And I would dare say right now there's more ministry happening at our church than there was when we were gathering on Sundays for worship. More work of the church and the gospel happening in that space than there was before. And I'm excited to think, what will this mean? What is God doing in our church, through our church, in our city, in Quinn Sigmund Village, through all this? Again, we can't see the full picture. We can't see that many steps ahead. But Ron, thank God, is just doing the next right thing in front of him, seeing God work. What does that mean for any of us? What is the next right thing? That's really all we're called to in this season, not to figure out what it means, where it fits in the big picture of things. We just can't know that. The early disciples didn't know it, but God was weaving their their faithful actions into something big and beautiful. And he's the same God at work in our lives, in our church now. I never imagined that uh, Serve Up would still be going on after all these years thought, honestly, it would just be something we did once in 2006. Didn't imagine that Liz would have been leading a team of Clark students to serve up Puerto Rico in 2020, which she did just in time before it would have got canceled. But one step in front of the other, do the next right thing. It was to go in 2006, and then when we saw what we saw, to go back in 2007. And in 2007, we went back to New Orleans. This this was just a great team. There was one person on the team in particular, a student leader, a junior at the time at BU, named David Carney. He was part of that crew. That week, Dave just emerged as such a gifted leader in that setting that it was the first time someone suggested to him, hey, did you ever think about going into campus ministry? And of course, he hadn't, really, but he started to. One next right thing after another. Never would have imagined then that Dave would have moved to Worcester, planted a thriving ministry at Clark and other area campuses. Most of the Clark students you've met at the journey are here in large part because of Dave. I think in in this picture in New Orleans in 2007, Dave probably never even knew Clark existed. And, And we can't know all of what God has in store, but he has continued to just do the next right thing one time after another, in expectancy that God is good and God is working for good. And I trust that God is working for good to bring something catalytic for the church locally and more broadly out of this crisis. So I want to pray for us and for each one of you watching now that even as we've had hopes shattered, expectations shattered, that God would build into us Uh, a wide-eyed expectancy for how he's at work, and that he would show us and guide our steps in doing the next right thing he's called us to do. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for the pages of Scripture recorded for us where you, you show clearly how you worked through crisis to bring about explosive growth, explosive amazing fruit through circumstances that people would have never chosen. And that is who you are. You are the same God yesterday, today, forever. And we are in the midst of a lot of circumstances right now. We didn't choose. We wouldn't have chosen. We would have never expected. 
And Lord, I pray that in the midst of it, you would build into us faith, that you would make our dominant narrative in our minds that you're at work so that we could see you, recognize you at work in every place where you are. I pray for those especially whose, whose faith has really been rocked by all this, who are having a hard time expecting good. Lord, break the power of, of, that, of that crisis of faith over them. Break the lies that are being spoken into their minds, Lord, and replace with a fresh faith, a real faith, not in what, what they can do or what they can understand, but in who you are. Build an expectancy into us, Lord, that we'll be ready when you open doors. We'll be ready when you move. We'll be ready to go when you say go. And Lord, where we need a specific word and a step just right now to do the next right thing, what is that? Speak to each and every one of us listening now. Give us one step to take, Lord. The faithfulness to do it and the ability to trust you for the rest. And I, I do pray that this crisis we're in, you would use it for every good thing you want to do in our church and beyond. In Jesus' name, amen.